Hello, welcome to episode 10 of Art Lives. My name is Elizabeth Thalemater. On this podcast, I talk with artists one-on-one about their art, their lives, and how they navigate the world. This episode features musician, educator, author, and instrument designer manufacturer Rebecca Kite. Very few people have made a broader range of meaningful contributions to Western percussion over the last 40 years, and Rebecca tells some of that story in this episode. This is an abridged version of my discussion with Rebecca. Episode 11 will be the unabridged version. Here is Rebecca Kite. I've always had a lot of interests. Yeah. And both of my parents were teachers. That's right. Which I think was very helpful Mm -hmm. because they could see what my, or especially my mother when I was younger, if I was interested in something, she would help me explore it or create situations or give permission so I could work on things or experience things. Uh, And we lived in college towns because my father was a college professor. Right. Some of, I got to do a lot of enrichment kinds of activities that were fairly basic kinds of things. But, you know, my mother played piano, so we had a piano in the home. Uh, after I was about five years old, that's when we got the piano. She didn't, uh, she didn't have one for a while, mm-hmm. even though she wished she had one. So um, uh, we got the piano, and, uh, of course, I wanted to play with it and uh, did a few, some piano lessons with her, maybe halfway through book one of Tom, John Thompson beginning <laughs> or, or the, the first book for young children or something like that. But uh, we didn't do lessons in a real rigid way. It was more exploring. I got to do a couple years later a summer photography class, and this I was like seven years old. My brother and I did it. He was three years older. We lived in Commerce, Texas, which is kind of amazing. Oh, I forgot. You were all the way down there. Yeah. It, the class was just taking uh, translucent and opaque and solid objects into the photography studio or the dark room at the college and uh, using the enlarger and put, putting stuff on the photographic paper and, you know, making designs or your hand or something and then watching it, you know, and this is how we did photography back in those days. Yeah. We had three water ass or develop it and bath and I did a lot of things like that, like activities, kits, sure. those kinds of things. And when I was nine and we had moved to Nebraska, I walked by to go to my uh, the elementary school, I walked by the music building every day and I would hear people singing the you know, when the windows were open when the weather was nice singers singing exercises and string players playing things and and I thought the violin sounded pretty interesting so I decided I wanted to play the violin and my parents said okay and (laughs) bought me a cheapy student violin uh, and I started taking violin lessons with the college violin professor Um, and that was a lot of fun I really enjoyed doing it and you know following the instructions and yeah. doing step one, two, and three, and then I could play my <laughs> tune and and enjoyed that. And I did that all the way through high school, uh, took lessons and played. When it came to uh, fifth grade band, where we started beginning band, uh, I wanted to play in the band. And I, mm-hmm. it wasn't, I wasn't going to stop playing the violin or right? even <laughs> playing around on the piano or those other things, but I wanted to play in the band, and I really liked the sound of the French horn, and I really liked the trumpet pretty well, but I really liked the sound of the French horn. We all got together, and uh, all the fifth graders got together, all like eight of us, or 10 of us, <laughs> uh, maybe 15 of us, uh, got together, and the band director went down the line, and we lined up in alphabetical order. That's what you did back in those days. Right. We were going to select the instruments to play because yeah. the school, we didn't have rental instruments. The school had a set of instruments for the band, enough for band, and that was it. Mm-hmm. And then the kids just, you know, um, Alan Adams <laughs> got his trumpet and Mike Adams wanted to play drums. So he got drums and um, Rhonda Collins got what she wanted to play. And my name started with K, which is right. in the middle of the alphabet. And by the time they got to to me, 
the French horn was gone because oh, no. there was only there was only the one or two horns, and anyway, they were caught, they were taken, and so the band director, of course, who you know knew my parents and he knew I was played the violin. Sure, yep. Because <laughs> it's a really really small place. <laughs> um, he said, "Well, why don't you play the drums?" And I said, "Okay, that sounds like fun." So for me, it was just it was just another interesting fun thing to do amazing my first beginning band experience was playing i you know we it was a small school so i guess the middle school band probably the right all the way up through eighth grade playing a short really short arrangement of theme from uh, great gate of kiev they gave me the symbol part and it was those you know, like 12 inch, really heavy clunky cymbals with wooden <laughs> handles on it because I was a little kid, right? Yep, yeah. In the fifth grade. And so I got to do, crash, crash, crash. And it was great. So I love that. So I was really, really hooked. It was really fun. And I didn't really have a percussion teacher because the band director was a saxophone player. The marimba was just. When when I got to college and there was a marimba there, I mean, I'd seen a marimba once, you know, I just, I could play it and read the music right away because it's just reading, it's like reading piano music. Right. Uh, so it's very, very easy. And so I learned, I was very interested in that and I was interested in multiple percussion. So I did a multiple percussion solo and I did a marimba solo with a friend of mine who played piano. I think it was, it was either... Peter's Sonata Allegro or the Tanner Sonata. My percussion teacher never asked me what I had done. He never auditioned me. He never asked me to play for him. And uh, at the first lesson, he had me get the Wilcoxon All-American Drummer, Uh and we started going through it doing rudiments. And so he never knew that I played these other things on student recitals and stuff because he never... I didn't work on any of the music with him because I was not a outspoken student, you know, whatever they, the teacher said to me to do, I just did it and didn't sure. really question them or anything. Yeah. And so I practiced my rudimental etude and all the other stuff I did on my own because it was interesting and fun to me and I wanted to explore it. I realized I was in the wrong, so I realized pretty quickly I was at the wrong school because there wasn't really a percussion department. Yep. And um, the best thing that my percussion teacher did at Wesleyan was tell me to join the Percussive Art Society. Wow. So I've been a member of the Percussion Percussive Art Society since the fall of 1969. How about that? Yeah, so it's like 50 years. <laughs> kind of amazing. Little pamphlet, the Percussive Notes was this little pamphlet, and it came, I think, four times a year. But I found out that there are other schools that had percussion departments. Right. And there were doing programs and they have percussion ensemble concerts and instead of just having one percussion major who was playing violin in the orchestra (laughs) they had lots of percussion majors and so I wanted to go to a different school and I ended up going to transferring but I knew by Thanksgiving I was at the wrong place sure so uh, my father and the band director at Peru Peru State College Mm -hmm. which is Peru Nebraska is the name of the town I lived in um the band director's doctorate was from UMKC, Conservatory of Music. Right, yeah. Um, and, and of course, they had a really excellent percussion program um, headed up by Charmaine Asher Wiley. In terms of percussion lessons, that's where I really had some really great instruction from her. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that's, that's where I really got started solidly on my path as a percussionist. Yeah. But really, I had done so much myself before then. It was it, things like practicing. You already knew. I love practicing. Yeah. So anything that was musical that we asked me to do, I wanted to to do it because at that point that was my, you know, I was I I, I was open to everything. Yeah, that's healthy. <laughs> yeah, I was just open to everything. I wasn't trying to be anything. I was just like, I wanted to learn as much as possible. Mm-hmm. So nice. So it was fun. It was like okay. being a can every you know. It was like being a candy store. Yeah, right. And so I liked I liked all of it. I maybe didn't like every single person. Maybe I didn't like every single assignment. But no, I practiced. Gosh, I probably practiced at least four hours a day because mm-hmm. I I made most almost all of those daytime hours because I didn't have there wasn't anything else I wanted to do. I didn't want to go hang out with my friends on the grass and watch cars go by or, <laughs> you know go do other things that college students spend a lot of time doing. I wanted to 
you know, I wanted to practice. Yeah. Because I, that's just always been being in the music and hearing the music and doing doing that's just always been really compelling for me. Mm-hmm. So then you went to graduate school, right? You went to Indiana. Yeah. And by that time, did you have a specific goal in mind, or were you still thinking, I just want a life in music? No, I, when I went to grad school, I had a specific goal. After undergraduate, uh, some friends of mine and I put together a band, like a jazz rock band. I That's played drum right. set for two years, made a living playing drum set. You could <laughs> do it back then. Yeah. We did not ever pay a club to let us perform at the club. <laughs> they paid us to come and perform in the club. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, I did that for a couple of years, and I got tired of the working conditions. Mm -hmm. Uh, I got tired of, it's hard to imagine today what working in a smoke-filled bar was like, Mm -hmm. where you can barely see the other side of the room, there's so much cigarette smoke in it. Uh, But that's what most clubs were like. And also, there are usually lots of drunk people, and, you know, after a while, you just just get tired of those kind of working conditions. Not every gig was like that, but enough of them were. Yeah. And um, I really was more interested in classical music, and I really wanted to play timpani. Okay. And I played timpani in the Kansas City Civic Orchestra. I played timpani in the Parkland Symphony, and I had started studying with Cloyd Duff. That's right. So when I went to graduate school, I wanted to go for orchestra and timpani and orchestral percussion training and try and get an orchestra job. So that was my goal for graduate school. That's right. Things, you know, kind of worked out for that. I did a lot of timpani work. I learned a lot about timpani and I was in um, like regional orchestras. And uh, as I wasn't getting like advancing through those, uh, I got more and more interested in marimba playing and I had heard uh, some soloists, marimba soloists. I heard Karen, Ir- Karen Irvin do a concert uh, in 1975 when I was in grad school. And it was the first time I heard Time for Marimba. Aha. And she played a couple other pieces. And there weren't really percussion soloists out there. Right. Anywhere at that time. Except Karen. Karen was the, really the first one. Hmm. Then I had done, I had taught in Evansville for a year and played timpani in the orchestra down there, Evansville, Indiana. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, so I learned some uh, solo marimba literature. And I had, I had a marimba. I had a Deegan Model 40. So I started playing recitals. You know, I was, it wasn't super compelling, but I was starting to do that. And then I heard Keiko Abe in 1981 at a PAS convention and heard it's a much bigger, different instrument and different way of playing. And when I met her in Indianapolis, which I was fortunate to get to do through a mutual friend, I asked her about a lesson, and so when she came down to Bloomington, she asked me if I would play Time for Marimba with her for the demonstration for the composer. Sure. The format for the clinic was going to be, I played Time for Marimba kind of straight. Yeah. Which is the only way I could play it. <laughs> and then she would do like uh, an improvised version of it. <laughs> and we would improvise together, then we would, we would do it together. So I played it straight and she would improvise with me. Mm-hmm. And so we rehearsed this. And <laughs> at the rehearsal, of course, I had heard her play on stage on the Friday before. And she was just like really, really amazing. Wow. And so when we did the rehearsal, she improvised with me while I played it. And she's always says this with her teaching. And it's, uh, she didn't have to have any English, which she didn't speak English really then. Just playing with her, I could. She kind of pulls you along. Her musical energy pulls you along, and just playing with her completely changed my idea of dynamic range and oh. energy and musical expression. Sure, it's almost like instant. It's like, you know, you're inside and it's gray and gloomy inside, and all of a sudden you just walk out into a whole like springtime, and there's color and stuff everywhere, and you're like, well, wow, where did that come from? But yeah, isn't it great? It's amazing. Yeah. And you can't really go back because once you experience that, it's that's your new standard. Yeah, forever um, after that. So it really made a huge impact on my playing. And later on, I studied with her in Utrecht in uh, about, I guess it was about four years, three or four years later. She did, did an international marimba uh, class there. 
1985, but in 1984, she was played at PASIC again in Ann Arbor. And the instrument she had played on in Indianapolis was an experimental instrument. It was a low F marimba that had the last three, I guess, or five C, C up to E bars on a roll-up extension that rolled up to the end of the uh, frame. I remember those. So it had been really incredible to hear a five-octave instrument. And in uh, Ann Arbor... It was the premiere of the YM6000. The five-octave instrument was had was finalized. It was all one frame. And the sound of the marimba was just incredible. The first time I heard that was in 93 when Keiko played Columbus. again in Columbus. That was an incredible, that's the most incredible concert I think she ever played that I was know about. That was an amazing it was, concert. I, yeah, I, I'll never, I'll never yep. forget it. And and like you said, that sound, and then, okay, this is a this is a different instrument. Yeah. So there you were, in 1984. I have to have one of these. <laughs> how am I going to get right? How, how am I going to get this marimba? And um, because I was looking for something after I had done that lesson in '81. Okay, right. I mean, my marimba was just like, oh my god, this sounds bad. <laughs> it's just not. It's just not adequate. I mean, it could do some things with it, but I wanted to play the, be able to play the Bach cello suites at pitch. Right. Because I loved the sonatas and partitas, and I loved the cello suites. Yeah. And I wanted to be able to play classical guitar music at pitch. Mm-hmm. So those were the main reasons I wanted the five octave. But it was such a compelling instrument, and it came out in the fall of 84, and when I, the, the study opportunity with her was coming up. It was in the spring of 85, and I'd already gotten information about that, which is a, that whole journey was kind of, you know, it's a whole separate story. Well, when, I guess I should probably mention it now, but when I heard the Marimba Spiritual in 84 in November, and the uh, Yamaha representative then was Jim Coffin, was his uh-huh. name. Okay. He's a really, really wonderful man, really sweet person. And uh, he made an announcement either before or at the end of the concert, I don't remember exactly when, but he said, he announced the new instrument because this is the premiere of that instrument in the United States. Yeah. And he said, we're just making a few of these next year. Next year. And I thought, how am I going to get one of those? <laughs> and so the concert ended. I ran up to the front of the auditorium to talk to him. Yeah. And and I went up to him and I said, Well, how can I how can I order one of these marimbas? What do I have to do to order this yeah. marimba? And he said, Well, just go talk to your Yamaha dealer. First I thought, Well, that's not gonna work. That's not how you get this. <laughs> <laughs> because I of course in my mind I'm thinking, Oh, everybody wants one of these because I want it. Everybody's gonna, you know, of course, which isn't true because I was probably the only super enthusiastic person there besides Keiko finally to have this thing finished. So I went home and in February I went in and I was involved in a timpani building business then and we had we showed our timpani first at that conference also. So oh, it was a very big I have the timeline wrong. So the, the t- same it was the same convention. How about that? Nineteen eighty four was a real mm-hmm. uh, big year mm-hmm. for us and for me. So anyway, I went to you know, we didn't have any money because we were starting this business and, you know, we're that's just what things are like when you when you're yeah. when you start stuff out. But we did have a banking relationship with the bank. So anyway, we're, I was trying to figure out how to how to get the instrument, and um, my business partner said, "Well, wh- let's just order it, and we'll figure out when it gets here. We'll f- figure it out." And it was eight thousand dollars back then. Okay, that's how much it was. And so, uh, and the cases were like 1500 or something. Whoa. And I wanted cases with it. So I went to my Yamaha dealer, and it was actually this music store that I taught drum set lessons at. Okay. So he knew me really well because Great. I'd been teaching there for quite a while. So I went in, his name was George Holden, the man who owned it, and said, you know, I want to order one of these marimbas. Mm-hmm. You know, what do I need to do to order it? Sure. And he looked at me and said, well, do you really want this thing? <laughs> And I said something like, I'll do anything to get this marimba. <laughs> and he looked at me and said, okay, I'll order it. Whoa. And so I didn't have to pay a deposit or anything. He ordered it, but it took 
couple of back and forths and with Yamaha to convince them that this was like a real order or something. And, you know, because they had seen the timpani business. They knew my name from the timpani business. Okay. So I think maybe they thought it was going to, like, copy it or something. Oh. Which is a little kind of laughable if they... <laughs> I wanted to I wanted to play marimba spiritual on it is what I wanted right. to do. But, um, anyway, so finally they accepted the order, uh-huh. and then I went to Utrecht to study with Keiko. And for this experience, I don't know that students would ever do something like this now because we didn't have mobile phones, we didn't make international phone calls, we didn't have instant communication, we had snail mail. And I had one snail mail letter with Keiko from two years before telling me the name of the when the class was in general and in Utrecht and inviting me to it, saying that I could study with her there. Please come to this event. And here's the name of the chair of the music school. Contact him and find out more details. Okay. So I had one letter, and that was a couple of years like two years before this event. Then uh-huh. I had contacted him, and it was probably nine months before the event. And he said, we'd love to have you. I'll f- we'll find you a place to stay. So con- come see me. Con- come see me when you get to Utrecht. Okay. <laughs> Here's my address. And it will be, you know, X dump number of, you know, it wasn't European Union then, but it'll be it'll cost this much money. Oh, I'm glad you said that. Yeah. So it wasn't the European Union. And so I had two letters. And so <laughs> it's and the second one was for November and the event was in April. As time got closer, we figured out okay, I'm going to fly from Chicago. I got Iceland Air tickets cuz back then that was the cheapest way to travel. Yep. So I was going to fly from Bloomington to Chicago and then from Chicago to Reykjavik and then from Reykjavik to Luxembourg, which is where Iceland Air flew. And then I had to get on the train and go through several countries, uh, Luxembourg, Belgium, a little bit of Germany, then back into Belgium and then the Netherlands. There were like four country crossings and then go to Utrecht and then find us person's house go up and like knock on the door and (laughs) hello say hi i'm here and hope it would work because this was really and this was really super sketchy in my mind and i had already lived i had already lived in central america and played in an orchestra and lived in another country and i knew that things can seem sketchy and be fine sure and things can seem sketchy and be really sketchy and maybe not work and just have to go with it and so uh, I bought plane tickets my friends helped me a little bit got the tickets got ready to go and thought you know well what do I do if it's terrible I mean I didn't know if Keiko would be there once or twice it was five weeks long is she there the last week the first week I had no idea what to sure expect. no idea what to expect I was hoping to at least get to spend have a few, a few lessons with her and what if it, I get there and it was canceled, you know, and nobody wrote to me, you know, I mean, you couldn't just look it up on Google and, or Facebook and see what other people are doing. Right, you know? right. And uh, you just had no idea what was going to happen. So I just thought, okay, I talked about my friends, the way to think about this is if, if it's terrible, yeah, just, you know go go to Europe for a little while. There you go. You know, okay. just go do something else and or change your flight and come back or, you know, to, but go. Cool. Because the best marimbas in the world has said, come and study with me. Right. Yeah. Well, why wouldn't I? Why go? wouldn't you? But I had no idea what was going to happen when <laughs> I went there. I mean, I didn't know if I was... Sure. I had no idea what was going to happen. Terrifying. I thought I was hoping for the best. Yeah. But I was just like... It was, there was no information. So I fly there and my planes flying over like the Northwest Territories and I see golden Northern lights under the plane. Oh, and wow. I think, it's all going to be okay. Oh, wow. <laughs> no, it was kind of silly, but, but it was like, oh, this is really kind of amazing. Yeah. The whole thing is kind of amazing. I can't believe I'm doing it. And so um, I left Chicago, I left Bloomington at like eight or nine o'clock on Saturday morning. Mm-hmm. And I got to Utrecht at about seven or eight o'clock 
on Sunday night. And it was after dark when I got to Utrecht and I had the guy's address and I got a taxi, went to his house. He saw me driving up, you know, saw a taxi driving up. So huh. he, he came out to the taxi. The, this is a dean of the conservatory. He yeah. came out to the taxi and he, he had, and he gave the taxi driver the woman's, he had found a, you know, a rooming house, a, okay. a woman's house who let out rooms in her house for students and gave the taxi driver her address and called over and said I was on my way. <laughs> so taxi driver took me over there. She came out and helped me and showed me my room. And I had a little hot plate and a little Whoa. refrigerator and, and had a room. And the, and the next morning she went with me on the bus to show me how to buy a ticket and which bus to get on and how to get off. And she took me into the building into the conservatory and it was, I don't know, nine or 10 o'clock in the morning. So that all worked. It was kind of astonishing, Yeah, but it worked and I was very happy about that. And uh, so I got to the, the building and about 30 minutes early and was sitting around, we're all sitting in a circle. There are probably, I don't know, 10 students. Okay. And it turns out I am the only international student. The other <laughs> students are just students at this music conservatory in Utrecht. Okay. So we're sitting around in a circle in the percussion it's an older building, so it's like a large room where the percussion equipment yep. was and where they had rehearsals and the, we had the class and stuff in there. Right on time, the door opens and the percussion teacher comes in and Keiko's with him and she looks over, she sees me right away yeah. <laughs> and she walks right over to me and says, oh, I'm so happy to see you. Wow. You, you ordered my marimba. <gasps> Oh. And I was, I was like stunned because the first thing in my mind was like, how did she know about this? <laughs> now, of course, I realized that the first thing that happened when my order hit the Japan desk was somebody called her. <laughs> and said, do you know and this? Said, and said, is it okay if we sell your model marimba to this person in the U.S.? Uh. Probably. So anyway, so yeah. she, so, and of course the other students were probably like, had no idea what was going on. Mm -hmm. And I was very relieved. And it turned out that she was there almost every day. She did go, she went to London for a few days and she went to someplace else for a few days. But I spent almost every day with her. Uh, we ate lunch together. I mean, I was the only one who could understand her English. Sure, <laughs> sure, sure. Because her English wasn't very good. And <laughs> I could figure out from the context what she was trying to say. Mm -hmm. And the Dutch people, they spoke English, mm -hmm. but it was kind of Dutch English. Sure. And so I ended up being an interpreter between the Japanese, I'll call it Keiko's Japanese English and Dutch English mm -hmm. and kind of simplifying and making it connect. Yeah. So, uh, so I was, it was really a lot of fun. And uh, she and I spent a lot of time together because it was uh, like an urban school and the students at five o'clock, they all went home. Oh. And of course she was staying at a hotel just a few blocks away and often didn't, have necessarily anything on our schedule so we ate dinner together a lot uh we ate lunch in the little cafeteria a lot because the students other students didn't come over and talk with her and <laughs> the only reason i was there was to study with her sure so if i had a chance to sit next to her i took it <sighs> yeah so i got to ask her thousands of questions because uh, i had lots of questions i wanted to be a soloist and we didn't have a marimba soloist she's the only, she in, in the u.s she's the top marimba soloist right with experience performing concerts with experience performing with orchestra with experience doing recitals lots of lots of experience violinists and pianists have lots of there are a lot more people with that kind of experience they can go study with to yep. find out how to prepare what kind of pieces to program right you know this and uh, we talked about the sound of the instrument, the acoustics of it, the uh, brightness or darkness of sound. And, and there was a Kori, Korogi, um, maybe a Bergerot, a couple of different Yamaha had sent several different, uh, they had sent us the 6,000 plus a low A marimba that was really, really beautiful instrument. It was kind of a proto some prototype instruments to help everybody have students like uh, everybody have instruments to practice on it wonderful so each one of them had their own kind of characteristic sound so we could i could talk about that with keiko uh. and what i was hearing and and uh -huh. and what she heard with them and and on and on and on uh so it was a really really 
transformative experience for me to, and we, plus we became friends. Yeah. Um, cause of spending all the time together. When I got the 6,000, when I got mine, which was the next Christmas, <laughs> I got it at my house on Christmas Eve, uh, of 2005. It took about almost a year from when I ordered it. It took like nine, 10 months mm-hmm. from when I ordered it. And it's serial number 10. Oh my gosh. So when I got it, you know, I took it out of the crates and put it together. It was like, of, of all the, the things I'd done uh, growing up, like, mm-hmm. oh, I went and figured this out, how to play this, figure mm-hmm. out how to play, how to bounce my sticks, figure out how to make the cake and uh, some of the other things, uh, you know, like figure the science kit out or something like that. This is like, oh my God, this has got, it's so different. It's so responsive. You just touch the bar and it rings, you know, the marim- the instrument. And yeah. it's, it's there in my living room yeah. right now. It's so responsive and the sound is so clear and it's, it's, it's a beautiful sound. It really focused clear pitch, mm-hmm. not kind of a thunky or woodblocky kind of clunky clock sound right. or anything like that. And the mallets weren't right. My mallets weren't right for it. The handles weren't long enough because the bars are so long. That's right. It's so big. It's big. <laughs> it's got such a different sound. This It was like, this is going to be a giant project to figure out how to play this. I don't mean... Was fine. that exciting? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was very exciting. I don't mean like, can I read the music and play the notes? No, that's no. That's not what I'm talking about. Yeah, right. How can I make really, really great music on this instrument? Ah. How can I get the most out of this instrument for the music that I want to play? And... So that's what, so that was really compelling and exciting. And uh, I spent a lot of time, you know, that's, I spent four or five years really exploring and trying out different things. And, you know, I made all my mallets and. And you got to dive into it. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, and I'm still exploring it. Sure. Uh, still working with that. So. And that's actually very similar to what you did with timpani. Yes. It's very interesting because the timpani sound and that marimba sound are really, really have a lot of similarities. Uh-huh. Yeah. In terms of the focus. And I'm not sure how that happened, but it did. Because <laughs> we came, the, the things that affected the timpani sound happened before I got the 6,000. That's true. Right. So uh, do you mind backing up and, and talking about um, when do you decide, wow, uh, I'm, I'm going to have to, or I want to, uh, develop my, uh, a whole brand new, uh, way of, of putting the timpani together. We need to, was it for you a matter of solving problems or, or doing it right? You created, you have patents on drums. You created new ways of, drum physical parts actually working together did that start because you wanted to fix something or seek <laughs> were you seeking well it's uh i mean the 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 answer i'm going to give is kind of like it only makes sense when you're in your 30s that you would do something <laughs> like this <laughs> because you lost your you haven't figured out that you've lost your mind yet <laughs> Um, that's so great. Well, one of the things, you know, I wanted to, I was still primarily a timpani player. The timpani, the, the seeds of the timpani business were like in 1980 or so. Okay. 81. We incorporated the business in 1982, but we had thought about it before. Right. I had, one of the jobs I had was taking care of instruments at the, like percussion technician at Indiana University, taking care of the timpani. And I've always been fairly mechanically inclined. I like to to make things. I like to models. I had, I like to take things apart and put things together. And that kind of combined with with uh, not having instruments to practice on, mm-hmm. and access to instruments to practice on. And I was working at I worked at IU for a short while, taking care of the instruments. And I had uh, done a lot of maintenance on the timpani. I did over, I overhauled this since, well, maybe overhaul is not the, I took apart and lubricated sure. all the part, cleaned and lubricated all of the moving parts mm-hmm. on the ringer timpani. 
when I did that, I found I, there were already flaws that I knew about. When I took the rocker arm off and took the uh, unhooked all the tuning lugs, mm-hmm. was going to take took the bowl out. Was going to take the spider out to to lubricate that center uh, post that that pulls the spider down. I unhooked it and then it was like moving around back and forth. And I thought, oh my God, I've broken this drum. What right. did I yep, do? Yep. <laughs> no, because I, you know, there's no instruction manual for this. I know. So I, I moved it back and forth and thought about it for a while. I thought, well, I didn't break this. That's just how this is made. And actually, you know, if you, the rocker arm moves in an arcing motion. Mm-hmm which is part of a circle. If you cut a, cut a piece out of a circle, that's an arc, a curve. The rock, because it's, the rocker arm is attached to a rod that rotates. That's a circular motion. And so the rocker arm is the part of the tympani that goes between the, what you push down with a pedal and what pulls down the spider. That part's called the rocker arm. So one side, he pushes down, when you push the pedal down, it rotates, and then the head's pulled tighter. But that wasn't pulling the head down in a straight line. Right. It wasn't pulling it down evenly on both sides. Yeah. It was pulling it down more on one side, which I already knew about, because you could see it, the head. No matter what you did with that head, after you played it for a while, it just pulled over about a half inch mm-hmm. or so to the side. It seemed like a big problem to me. Yeah. And so I thought, wow. And we started talking about building drums because we didn't have any. Oh, and, and one of the there was a student also a student there uh, who had built a set of drums, a real rudimentary oh. like on welded frames and okay. stuff. He was like a physics major or something. And so I thought, well, if he can do it, I can do it. <laughs> if if other people can do it, I should be able to figure this out. Okay. Um, so I th- so um, Barb Barbara Allen, my business partner, and I started talking about, well, let's build some drums. And I said, yeah, because let's, you know, fix this. So we wanted to build a drum that worked better and sounded and sounded better. Mm-hmm. And uh, mostly I was comparing it to the ringers because that's what we had. And those were at the top, supposed to be the, the top of the at, line. At that time, yeah, yeah, that was available in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And so we started, we decided to start to build timpani. <laughs> that's the decision I think is like, why? I don't know, because we were too dumb to know it's like a really daunting idea. Wow. We just thought, well, well, let's just start doing it. So if you start, if you just start, that's the hardest part. Sure. And so we decided to start with the bowls because if we couldn't get, if we couldn't get bowls, right. we didn't need a frame. <laughs> that's for sure. So we thought we'll start with the bowls. And um, that led to meeting Robert Picking, who was 104 years old or 102 <laughs> years old and uh, Bucyrus and learning, he wouldn't make bowls for us because he didn't want to, he was making them for Hinger and the other people and others uh, and good men. And he, you know, we asked him to make them, make the bowls for us. And he said, no. And then, and we said, well, we want a different shape anyway. And he said, well, if you have some patterns, if you bring back, can make some patterns and we'll talk about it. Oh, maybe I'll teach you how to do it. And so hmm. three months later, we showed up with patterns, or Barb showed up with patterns. And, and so he decided to have us in his shop and have the crew uh, teach us <laughs> how, to, how to make the bowl. So um, uh, there's a lot of math involved in the, and acoustics involved in coming up with a bowl shape. Right. And that's, um, it's mentioned in the patent. We had to figure out how to make bowls, and that was really, really very dif- difficult because, of course, they didn't show us how to do it. They showed us ways to try to do it that weren't going to be successful. And you can't go to the yeah. grocery store to get copper bowls. Right. Yeah, molds. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, and we had to find equipment, and that was a whole saga in itself, which wow. I won't go into right now. But we did manage to do it, and we showed our timpani at that 1984 convention in <sighs> uh, Ann Arbor. And it had that, that had that really pure, clear sound. Yeah. We made a set of those. We made three of those, and I took them to Boston uh, for recording session on Kay Gardner's Rainbow Path. So that was the actual premiere of those drums. No paint, no pedal mechanism, just the wrench. But they sounded they sounded really, really great. Huh. And that was the first time we heard them. We've been working on it for two, two and a half years. Huh. So that was kind of amazing. 
looking back on it and you know right now there's a uh, exhibit on i donated the prototype set to the pas museum and it's still on display it'll be there another year yeah yeah looking back on it, it's like amazing and, and when we were doing it it seemed like it took forever to do every step oh i bet i mean it just seemed like it was like torturous like <laughs> to get stuff done and to to be able to make the bowls you know, it was really, everything was a saga and was figuring it out. It took about a year and a half to figure out the whole bowl thing. And it was just really, really, really difficult Wow, to get through that. But you didn't give up? No. Hadn't tried everything yet. Yeah. Is that basically Sometimes it for you? Sometimes there were prayers for inspiration. Okay. All right. <laughs> it was not smooth. It was not easy. It was very, very difficult. Sure. Because of not, not having training and some of not having real training and some of the assembly methods right not really having training in like welding and soldering and brazing and and metalworking and stuff like that yeah looking back on it it's like oh my god i can't believe we did all that and it didn't really take that long when i when i look at the time i I wrote out a timeline and i'd never done that before because when you go through it it just seems like this torturous experience (laughs) you know this isn't done yet this isn't done yet the you know the major won't say his name is calling us saying you must deliver these by the next month or else or else or else you know yeah to get yelled at by people on the phone but you know it's so you also ran you ran a business you started yes we pat we we started a corporation uh-huh we had a few like family shareholders you know who believed us mm-hmm. <laughs> they thought we were crazy mm-hmm. um and um so we started the corporation in 1982, and by 1984, in two years, and we hadn't done any of, we had done thinking about it and maybe some some stuff, but in those two years, we went from starting a corporation to showing at a convention. Incredible. Which, when you, if you look at, if anybody's ordered, what is it, Kickstarter? Yep. Like a Kickstarter, you know, high-tech keyboard for your computer that's now been six years and they still have your $300, <laughs> you don't have your keyboard. <laughs> Or, you know, actually two years is incredibly fast. Very fast. And we got, a, at that convention, we made a sale. Oh. And so we got our first sale there. It was to one of the Air Force bands, uh, uh, the one in Langley, which is kind of interesting. So when I looked at the timeline, I realized we were really busy. <laughs> and we this went really, actually, this was very, very quick. Yeah. I stopped doing it. I was really, I realized I was a lousy manager. Huh. I'm good at figuring things out and uh, like prototyping and ideas and trying new things and learning new things. And that's what excites me and has always been what I'm excited about. Being a manager and doing the same thing over and over. Wow, that's like just stultifying and like, I hate that. And And I had gotten more and more involved in the marimba. We did it for about 12, the total of about 12, the last set of timpani. I also, I also built some historical timpani that I, I did all of the bowl work on those. I think four or five sets, and I think the last one of those I sold was in 1996, so 14 years. You personally were pounding the bowl shape. Yes, well, Barb Barb did, I did most of the brazing work on the other ones, yeah. the torch work. <laughs> and she did the, worked with the, you don't pat it out from a flat shape. It's it's how it's a sheet metal process mm-hmm. that you cut out, and the hammering makes the copper uh, stretch and stiffen up in certain sure. ways to make the shape. The shape's determined by the pattern that you cut out. Uh, maybe I'm the only one, but I can't be. I I can't be the only person who didn't know you were literally building these yourself. Oh no, a lot of people didn't know that. And that's that I didn't realize that until like this the, the, like about a year ago. Yeah. We show when we showed them and some people talked to us and seemed to know that we had done them, but mm-hmm. when we there was a there was a thread on Facebook about hammering timpani bowls or something okay. like that. It was about timpani bowls. Yeah. And I know a lot about that. <laughs> yes. Oh, probably more than, even though there are a lot of timpanists who feel like they know a lot about it, I have a special additional knowledge that they don't have. Obviously. <laughs> and so, so we're talking about these. And so I talked about, you know, for a long, after I quit building the timpani, I, mean, I was busy doing other stuff. So I didn't really 
talk about it much since in like 20 years, 1996, <laughs> that's 23 mm-hmm. years. But these are people who are in my age group. Yeah. Right? You know, women didn't play timpani in orchestras and yeah. women still don't play timpani in, or- in major orchestras. Yeah. And so that, that part of it is kind of invisible, I guess. And anyway, some people knew that we made them and we talked about it. And I just, it never occurred to me that someone would see that work and have us, and, and when we say we do this, I mean, it's like would not realize that we actually did it. It never, it never occurred to me in all this time, okay? Yeah. And when we're talking about this, this, this timpani player says, so are you saying that you actually like hammered the bowl? And I said, yes. That was this year, that like was recently. Year. That was last year. <laughs> and then I realized these people thought we were like the bikini models at the boat show. Yes. Somebody else made the boat and we're just here with the literature. Yep. Yep. And I thought, really? Yeah, this whole time. So when when we took the timpani to PAS, you know, I moved here recently mm-hmm. from Virginia, gave them to the museum, and then when we took them there in August, uh, frankly, I was surprised that they would take them. Oh. Because let's just say I've been a PAS member since 1950. So I was surprised, and I was very happy that there's someone there who could see value in this and was excited to have them for the museum. And I thought, this has to happen while now. Good. This has got to ha- go. This has got to happen now. Yeah. Get the paperwork signed. Get it there so that it doesn't fall through. That's exciting. So when we took it there, that was what was on my mind in August mm-hmm. when we took the timpani there. And so Barb came down. She lives in Minneapolis. I spent like a week cleaning them. We spent, I don't know, a day or two getting them ready. And then we put them in the truck, rented a truck, and drove them down to Indianapolis. And it was like, great. Because it's so exciting that they're going to be in the museum. Yeah. And we get there and we get them unloaded. And then um, we're finished with the first round of stuff. And and the the guy at the museum is looking at someone and said, should we tell them? Should we tell them? Have you told them yet? Like, tell us what? And then they told us they're going to do this exhibit. I had no idea. Oh, you didn't? I had no idea. It was the furthest thing from my mind. I figured someday, someday, sometime they'll put them out and I wasn't thinking about an exhibit can't believe it so it was very it was very exciting and gratifying yeah that it was going to be exhibited and it was during PASIC it was mm-hmm. like after 50 years to have some recognition for what I've done yeah um with a career anyway so and looking back on it is just kind of unfathomable that we did all that but we did but you did yeah and then you wrote and a book, did. and then well, yeah. I mean, this, you. So I, I that do alone, these, I do these. Yeah. I just like am attracted to these really large, impossible projects. I don't know. I just you know like trying to learn Japanese or something, you know, or learn the violin again. Things that you can spend your life doing. But yeah, my current project is musicianship and phrasing and expression for marimba players. How can they increase that in their and add that to their uh, experience of the marimba? And I think it has to come from teaching differently. Mm-hmm. Looking at all of these huge projects you've done, I'd be very proud if I had done one of them <laughs> myself. And I, you're just a seeker, perhaps. Well, I just follow. I'm just following the things that are interesting and compelling to me. And then when it's done, I'm, you know, not that interested in it anymore. There you go. I'm interested in something else. Well, thank you so much for talking about all of this. And I think that uh, we could probably have three more sessions to talk (laughs) about all the things you've done. So hopefully we will be able to do it again at some point. But thank you so much for sharing your story and all of your thoughts and advice for some of us who are still learning and seeking or trying, trying to learn, trying to seek. Thank well, you. It, you know, everyone's path is unique. Yeah. And I think following what really resonates with you and following what you are interested in is the first place to start and not 
and doing things for yourself, not for other people or what other people's expectations or what you think might be other people's expectations. Right. Especially, it's not that easy to let go of, it's not always that easy to figure out, well, what do I really, who am I and what do I really want to do and what am I interested in? Mm -hmm. uh, if you think you have to do some things certain ways and if it's it, it, getting rid of preconceived or the um, attitudes that you've grown up with and have been around you um, can be a major um, task. Yes, well said. <laughs> a task. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you seem to uh, have done it very well, and I think that's a great model for some of us to follow, many of us to follow. So thank you. You're welcome. You have been listening to the Art Lives Podcast. Much gratitude to Rebecca Kite for talking with me. We are listening to Rebecca's recording of A Theme from Handel from her album called Across Time. I posted links to Rebecca's website, RebeccaKite.com, on the Art Lives page of my website, ElizabethDeLamater.com. Please give us a rating and comments on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. More ratings allow more people to hear us. My continuing gratitude to Bill Salick, artist Eduardo Moreno for our logo, and special thanks to composer Nicholas Myers for our theme music. Thank you so much for listening to Art Lives. Thank you.